Welcome to Addiction and the Family, Episode 17, Young, Gay, and Sober. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addiction's affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. Addiction affected my family tremendously. Uh, it's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction has spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction and the Family, a podcast by and for family members of anyone with an addiction. My name is Casey Arriaga and I'm a clinical social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mind Out Emotional Wellness Centers in Texas. And I'm Kira Ariaga, addiction counselor intern and recovery coach at Windmill. Casey and I were in our addictions together for over 10 years and have now been in recovery together for almost twice that long. I've led hundreds of family workshops, but just as important is that Kira and I have lived the experience of being family to addiction as both children and adults. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. In this episode, Casey speaks with Amy Jade Galloway about her journey from the first drink at age 21 to her first attempts at sobriety at 22 and to the life she has now as she celebrates her first year of sobriety at 26. Amy speaks openly about her experience of trying to drink socially and of finally getting truly sober while navigating young adulthood as a lesbian in a small town in Scotland. We'll hear that interview after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. Welcome back. Now let's hear that interview. Thank you so much for being here, and welcome to Addiction to the Family. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Amy. I'm 26. I live in a little seaside town in Scotland, and I'm a recovered alcoholic. Um, I'm one year fully sober from alcohol. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Oh, I had a I had an absolute celebration. I had a cake and a, a party hat that had one on it, and of course. They make them for one-year-olds, so it didn't set my head. But I still had the celebration, so... That's beautiful. So, what has you on a program called Addiction and the Family? Well, basically, with me being one year sober, I'm now kind of through the woods, and I kind of wanted to go on to help others um, who are in my position, especially young people who have issues with alcohol, because I think a lot of the time it completely swept under the rug and kind of masked. Um, a lot of people, a lot of friends and family have just recently found out about it. And so with my one year sober, I've been blogging and just kind of being really active on social media about my recovery. That's wonderful. And I really appreciate that you're doing that. Thank you. 
would you mind giving us a, a little bit of your story? What brought you to this point? Of course. So I guess like most people's story starts with alcohol by, you know, them underage drinking or um, being rebellious. I was actually a really, really good kid to the point of almost wanting to be a nun, um, which is laughable to think about now because not only am I a recovered alcoholic, but I'm also a lesbian. So all of that just does not fit in at all. Um, but basically, um, I saw all my friends drinking and it never interested me. But my toxic relationship with alcohol started um, at a family wedding when I was 21. My dad basically kind of took me outside and told me that he was leaving the family. So that was a lot on my shoulders. Um, and I'd previously struggled with um, bulimia in my late teens. So that was already an established coping mechanism. And so that night after he told me, in order to forget, I went just straight to the bar. Um, and I remember just feeling that comfort from the, the burn that the alcohol gave me, like sliding down my throat. I started to forget, and that kind of started the whole kind of toxic relationship that I had with alcohol after that. We know that addiction is about 50% genetic. So there are some predispositions that for some people may lie dormant for years or decades, or if they're really lucky, maybe their entire lifetime, it never comes up. But there's many of us that were kind of walking into a trap and we didn't even know it was there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, without a doubt. If you could see into the future, you know, you're, you're not gonna pick up that first drink, you know, and I definitely wouldn't have if I realized the strength that alcohol had over me. Are you the only person in your family that you know of to deal with addictive or compulsive behaviors? Um, I remember speaking to my mum about it and on my mum's side there was nothing on my dad's, uh, apart from my uncle Eric, and on my dad's side there was nothing. But, I mean, we could dive into that deeper and, and look at just because there wasn't alcohol as an addiction doesn't mean there wasn't other types of addiction. I mean, my dad was pretty into gambling. My granddad on my, my dad's side was quite big into gambling and it could have been anything and it could have been anywhere within my family line. That's a great recognition and you may well be aware that compulsive gambling is actually the first behavioral addiction that was really recognized and now that's moving over where people will say okay there's compulsive sexual activity, compulsive shopping, things like that, that are becoming more and more recognized and often framed in terms of an addiction. But we know that a lot of times eating issues, at least in the American healthcare system, have been very much carved out and treated like, okay, that's an issue over here. And then chemical addiction is a whole other thing. But I'm seeing more people starting to move towards saying, well, maybe some of these same tools that work for outside chemical addiction can be applied for eating issues or gambling issues or any kind of compulsive behavior. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that things like that, when it's a gambling addiction or, you know, a food addiction or something other than substance and alcohol, it's kind of pushed to the side or kind of hidden um, and not really seen as an addiction a lot of the time. And so in cases like me, when it comes down to admitting that I'm an alcoholic and that I'm in recovery, looking back in my family line, I look for those like red flags of alcoholism. And there's none really apart from the one uncle 
But if I look for signs of addiction, gambling and food, it lights up like crazy, you know? Yeah, it really does. And it's a great recognition to be able to see that for a lot of people, and especially young people, because, again, you're sort of on a mission, which I love, to go and talk to young people and get that message out there, let people know not only are they not alone, but there is a solution that's available to them. If people can recognize that they're not necessarily the black sheep in the family, which we know, especially around chemical addiction, sometimes people will focus on one member and say, oh, they're the problem. If they would clean it up, everyone else would be fine. To be able to move away from that is really powerful. And what's been your family's reaction, if I may ask, to your addiction and then also to your recovery? I feel like they were definitely shocked. One minute I was a, a really, really good kid and doing really well and, and I wouldn't even say the word bottom. Like I was a perfect child. My mum would describe me as an angel, even in my teenage years. I was really good while all my, my friends were out drinking. So it came as such a surprise to her, I'm, I'm sure. And we're quite open, we speak about it now, but I think that their reaction at first was was more shock than anything. Um, I'm, I'm lucky that they were very, very supportive within my recovery. Um, towards my addiction, I'd say they didn't realize how bad it was. Otherwise, they would have forcefully done something and put me in rehab or something. And looking back on it, I had it very, very well. Um, my mum owned her own store. She owned a delicatessen at the time um, when my alcoholism was at its peak. And I worked in there. Of course, like, you know, she was the owner of the store and it was just kind of starting up and she didn't have very much money. And so I was like, you know what, it's, it's fine. I can just, I can work away here. And, and she would just throw me some some cash now and then, you know, it wasn't like a like set wages, but every penny would go towards drink and she didn't know that. And I know for a fact that she wouldn't have gave me that money if she knew where it was going. Um, a lot of the time I would I would come into work drunk and I would get, you know, the change wrong and somebody's order or I would get somebody's order wrong. But um, I remember one year I was probably drinking for a solid year at this point um, and nobody really kind of noticed too much but my brother and my mum were starting to pick up on little things and my brother at the time came to me and he said you know for my birthday I would I would really like something but I don't know if it's too much to ask and I was like yeah I sure expect them to say you know an iPhone or like an iPod but um He'd asked me if I would stay sober for my birthday and for his birthday. And I think that was a point where I was like, well, they know, they know that something's going on. And also I was like, well, wait a minute, something must be going on. Like I, I must have a problem if he's asking this of me. And so I didn't really see it as a big deal. I thought, yeah, I can stop at any time. It's completely fine. And I stopped drinking a few days before my birthday in preparation for being sober in his. And I went through horrific withdrawals. And I think that's when they noticed just how bad it was. I think they thought that it was like a once at night thing, but it was it was like a waking up at 8 a.m. and taking a shot to, to wake me up and hiding vodka in Sprite bottles and in water bottles and dashing at places at work. But through my recovery, they've been really, really, really supportive. I have an amazingly supportive girlfriend who has stuck by me through 
every single aspect of my addiction. And so I'm, I'm really, really thankful for that. I'm really glad to hear that you have that level of support and hearing that sometimes that kind of support comes from family members asking the difficult questions or making the difficult requests. Absolutely, yep. And was that it? Were you sober from that point forward? Oh no, it took, it took a, a good while. Um, so I had probably been drinking for about a year solid at this point and um, I was I was badly bulimic as well. Um, I was barely keeping anything down. The only thing I would I would keep down was my vodka and laxatives at the point to obviously fuel my bulimia and fuel my alcoholism. I would be lucky if I was keeping down one meal a day. It was a, a dark place. I think at that point I had kind of realised I had a problem. I had actually went to an eating disorder clinic. I remember then refusing to treat me because I was under the influence of alcohol. I remember them giving me leaflets for rehab and for outpatient programs. But I was so offended, so offended. I remember saying to them, do you think I'm an alcoholic? And they were like, oh, no, yeah, kind of. <laughs> like, you're, there's some things there. And I remember walking out and getting so mad and crunching up this paper and throwing it and being like, I can't possibly be an alcoholic. I'm, I'm in my 20s. We have a, a kind of organisation here, Ad Action, um, which has now changed to We Are With You. They were absolutely amazing. I remember walking in and being so scared that they were going to yell at me. But they were so good and they didn't force me into recovery, which was a big thing because I had such a fear at that point that I would be completely out of control. Little did I know that I was completely out of control. I was in the depths of it. Um, but they basically showed me the direction I wanted to go and metaphorically just held my hand through it. But I kind of refused to admit that I couldn't socially drink because, I mean, I was in my early 20s. I didn't want to think I'm never going to be able to have a sip of alcohol again. I'm never going to have a night out with my friends again. I kept saying that to myself for three years, up until last year. Um, I had ended up going to um, college to study, to go into the recovery field. And um, I was casually drinking during that, but soon realized that that was not a good idea. My girlfriend had kind of approached me and had said, I think that this might be a small issue again. And I was like, no, I'll be fine, I'll be fine. But I, I soon realized that, you know, I was starting to hide drink from her again. It was a jolt when I had to tell her. Um, we have a very honest and open relationship that we can speak about these things and I had to be honest with her and I said, I'm drinking a bit too much again and she was like, okay, what, what do we do? How do we, how do we tackle this? And she was amazingly supportive with me and we decided, or well, I decided that I would enter recovery. I would be completely sober. Um, and so last year, I decided to just go for it. I put my head down and I kind of just metaphorically like closed my eyes and ran through the forest. And then I kind of opened my eyes and I was I was one year sober and I'm like, oh, like <laughs> I've done it kind of thing. Um, but through that one year, I had a lot of therapy, I had a lot of talking to different outpatient programs, but just speaking to them if I was struggling, if I needed advice. Well, that's great that you were able to reach out for those resources and that they were available. You mentioned being lesbian and how supportive your girlfriend has been. 
which is a lot more accepted today than even in the recent past, but can nonetheless be quite difficult for people. Can you talk about how this may have impacted your journey in addiction and recovery? I think the biggest thing for me when figuring that out about myself was, again, the stereotype around me being an alcoholic was that I didn't look like an alcoholic. I wasn't the age of an alcoholic. I wasn't this thing that society has in their head. And so growing up, I was I was an extremely feminine little girl. Like I, I, I would wear dresses. I had loads of dolls. My nails were always painted. I was obsessed with Disney princesses. And so when I entered my teen years and thought, wait a minute, I'm, I'm kind of having an attraction towards females here. It was completely put out of my mind because I was like, well, no, because because I, I'm not a tomboy. Like I don't I don't fit that stereotype. I didn't act what society labels as as somebody who who acts gay. The only representation of lesbians that that I could see were sexualized by the media. I felt wrong. I felt dirty, and, and for for finding attraction to towards women, I I, I would get a lot of the well, like, are you sure you're gay, you're very feminine, or have you, have you tried being with a man? And so when it came to me coming out, I wasn't, I felt like I wasn't ready to be sexualized. I wasn't ready to be judged by people. I felt a lot of shame. Um, I knew that people would either sexualize my sexuality or disapprove of it. And I think it was a lot of internal things that I felt. I felt a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. And and even though I hadn't really spoken to my parents about it, like I kind of thought, well, who wants to have a gay kid? You know, and I was I was so nervous and I wasn't ready for any of it. And so I think it was it was all too easy to reach for substances to ease the guilt and the shame I felt over loving someone um, of the same sex and not being able to, to accept myself. I definitely feel like that played a big role in my addiction. You sound comfortable with yourself now. How did that happen and how has it affected your recovery journey? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like now I'm very comfortable. I feel like I can stand here and say that I'm a proud lesbian. I feel very comfortable, not only comfortable, but, but very proud to say that. Um, same with my addiction. I think that, like I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that I have overcome so much um, in, in such a short amount of time. I, I mean, I'm, I'm still very, very young. Like, you know, a lot of people will kind of look at me and um, and kind of be like, are you, are you sure, you know, you had a problem with drink? Are you sure you weren't just kind of party girl? I, I mean, I can only go off of, of how I feel when I'm around my partner, my girlfriend. I feel that love is something to be celebrated. It's so pure and, and so magical that I just, I'm I'm so proud to say that I'm her partner and I'm so proud to say that, that I'm gay. And I think it's taken a long journey to get here. Um, and I still think I'm working towards feeling even more comfortable and even more proud of myself and proud of who I am and, and to feel comfortable with who I am. I mean, I could be in my 80s and still be working towards this goal of what I see my life like or what I see myself like, you know? And so it's, it's a journey. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, and then we'll come back with more from Amy Jade. Addiction and the Family is made possible in part by you, our listeners, through the power of Patreon. If you want to help support this podcast, simply drop by our support page at patreon.com slash addictionandthefamily, or alternatively, go to patreon.com 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And search for Addiction and the Family. Any level of support helps us carry the message. And official patrons get sneak peek excerpts from my book in progress, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions. Visit our page on Patreon for details. Welcome back. Now let's hear the rest of Casey's interview with Amy Jade. So there you are. You don't fit the stereotype of a lesbian or an alcoholic, and you're in a small Scottish seaside town essentially coming out as both. How did that go? Everybody around me was really accepting. I think it was a shock for them because they already had this preconceived idea of what a lesbian kind of looks like according to society. And I didn't fit that at all. And so a lot of people were kind of taken back, I would say, but overall very supportive. And towards my addiction, I mean, it's, it's a very small town. And so word travels very, very fast. And when you're going over to different stores to get like a half bottle of vodka or a full bottle of vodka, word's going to spread and, and people are going to talk and they're going to be like, yeah, well, she was at my shop, like, you know, a couple of times this week. And it's, oh, she was at your shop a couple of times. She was at my shop a couple of times. And so I think everybody knew that I did have a problem. More recently, though, when I've been kind of a lot more open about my recovery, I think people were kind of relieved to see it. Um, I got a really good reaction. I've, I've shared it about making a social medias. No, everybody's everybody's been great, and I'm I'm really thankful for that because I know that it's it's not the case with a lot of people, and so I am very 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 grateful for that. Well, I'm grateful to hear that too. But given that Scottish culture can revolve around drinking enough, that you came out to your friends in the local pub, how do you socialize in your community now that you're sober? Right now, I feel like I have more of a social life than I did um, when I was drinking, which is really great. I've met so many people within the recovery community. I've met some, I would say, lifelong friends through recovery communities, whether it was in person a couple of years ago or whether it was through Zoom groups and things. I'm, I'm in a Zoom group right now that is um, LGBTQ recovery, which is, is amazing. I think surrounding myself in sober friends has been awesome. Um, I don't really hang out as much with my kind of friends from my town or my kind of older drinking buddies because I still feel like even though I'm, I'm a year sober and I'm very very comfortable within my recovery I still don't feel like we're on the same page you know and, and that happens regardless of if somebody's in recovery or not just now though I'm very heavily involved within the recovery community for my town and a couple of towns around it there's been a great kind of support network there and security that I feel within them. I'm so glad to hear that you found that support, but we know that many people out there can feel isolated, especially if they feel like they're different than what is expected and they're struggling with addiction. What would you want to say to them or even to a younger version of yourself? I think my advice to someone feeling the same way that I felt, um, is to to not be ashamed and that's easier said than done because I was ashamed for so long. I think a, a big thing is to meet more people that are um, within the LGBTQ community. Um, surround yourself and sober friends. But I think above all else is, is to accept yourself and know that what you're feeling and how you're feeling is in no way wrong. It's 
it's beautiful and it's to be celebrated and I think that that is something that I had to learn the kind of hard way I've said it before and I will keep saying it until my last breath there is no shame within recovery and there's no shame in having a sexuality that differs from the norm and a big thing I think if I was speaking to my younger self would be you don't have to you know put a label on it you don't have to fit in a box just be yourself like love who you want to love and work on accepting that and I think all the rest will follow from there wise words now have you been involved in any kind of recovery fellowship um, more recently, yes, absolutely. I think that that was something that I regret not doing when I first started. And so I think when I finally had that one year of sobriety underneath my belt and I'd kind of gone through the worst of it, I think that is when I was like, okay, right, it's time to share my story, time to like meet people, time to be open about it. There's nothing to be ashamed of. And so only just kind of recently after my one year sober, I've started to do some Zoom meetings with um, people who are in recovery. I'm very active on Twitter and of course there's my blog. I just I blog about everything. My experiences of drinking, I share what it's been like for me um, and what it's like living in a world where alcohol is so predominant in my age and especially in my culture. Therefore it links me with another bunch of people who are also in the same boat and maybe they're on day 300. 365 they might be on day three and it, it doesn't matter we all just connect and um, I've been lucky enough to lead a couple of Zoom groups which has been amazing and such a great experience to be able to connect and have that thing in common which is so deep and so profound that we can connect on that sort of level. And I hear you saying you wish you would have started going to meetings earlier. I think that it just could have benefits me a lot being able to speak to people who were also having those same triggers or had felt those same triggers during my one year sobriety um my brother was having a party with some of his friends and as you know young people do they've, they've got the beer out and everything and i remember being so scared for weeks beforehand and i was like i don't even know if i can and so i think having somebody who had been there and done that to speak to about it instead of just like closing my eyes and getting on with it would have been a huge, huge help. The struggles that I kind of went through were not facing my triggers. That was a big one. But being able to speak about them a bit more openly now and being able to be a bit more open about where I am currently, which is a, a great place right now. In my mind, it's very metaphorical for running and like cleaning up the mess behind me and that's kind of what I feel like I'm doing right now because I just like ran through the fire type thing and it's like oof I've put all that out so I need to go back and clean that up you know thank you for that can you talk more about where young people and their family members may struggle to recognize what is a problem and what is normal drinking for that age and what do you think can be done to address that definitely young people go under the radar when talking about alcoholism, people have this preconceived idea of what alcohol addiction or alcoholism or even problems with alcohol look like. Alcoholism does not discriminate age, race, gender, your career. It's not a drunk on a park bench drinking spirits in a paper bag. It can be a mother, a father. It can be somebody as young as me. It can be a teenager. It could be the CEO of a company. It can be someone's grandmother. 
and it happened to be me and I was in my 20s. I think that a lot of the time people just put it down to they're young, they're partying, you know, it's, it's just them, they like a drink. I definitely think culturally in Scotland and in Ireland we have this tradition, we have this let's go down to the pub for, you know, a couple of beers. Or like, oh, I've got the day off. You know, it's a nice day, so let's go by the pub at 12 p.m. And this is all normal. And while it can be great for socialisation, for people who are exposed to alcoholism and, like you said, genetically runs in the family, this can be a, a real issue. It can, it can be a kind of life or death situation, but is always sweeped under the carpet with young people unless they are the ones that address the issue and um, it, it goes completely unnoticed until you know they're in their 50s and they finally fit the mold of what alcoholism looks like and then they get help and I think I'm really passionate about speaking about it before it gets to that point. And that is fantastic but I know that some young people even when they do accept help go to recovery meetings or show up in a recovery program, whether it's for alcohol, other drugs, eating, gambling, shopping, whatever. And they may look around and be like, oh man, these people don't all look like me. They're old, they're going bald. Like, where do I fit in here? What would you say to them? (laughs) I've been there and done it. I have walked into a room full of people, not just in their 40s, but in their 60s. And, you know, people will double take at you. They will look at you funny. They'll be like, why is she here? Um, I got a lot of the, are you a binge drinker then? You know, and I would respond with, no, I was physically dependent. I detoxed, you know, ever since. I think that the main thing to focus on when you walk into a room and you're the youngest person in there is to feel non-selfish pride and see you as an early version of where they are right now. I often speak to people who are in their 50s and 60s and they have had problems with alcohol since they were a teenager and every single person I spoke to has said, oh, I wish I would have done that when I was your age. I wish I would have entered recovery at that age. I've lost so much of my life due to alcoholism or due to problem drinking. And that just fuels my recovery more to hear that and to hear that I could be there if I wasn't in that meeting right now. I could be sitting at the other side of the table. I could be in my 50s sitting in this recovery meeting and see a young person come in and feel the exact same way. And granted that people might be surprised to see you at the meeting, did you find that they were supportive? Oh yeah, absolutely. Definitely. I think at first, it was kind of different for them because, I mean, if if you're used to going to these meetings and seeing people around your age and this kind of like newbie walks in, you're kind of like, oh, okay, like fresh meat type thing. (laughs) But I've had great support from everybody that I've met. Well, I'm really glad to hear that. Can you talk about the influence of society on your drinking? Here at a big drinking culture. You guys probably have like Irish pubs and everything over there and, and St. Patrick's Day is an excuse to get like wrecked. <laughs> so over here in Scotland, it's pretty much the same. When a girl turns 18, you know, her mom's like, oh, come on out with my friends and we'll go to the pub. And it becomes a kind of tradition. It becomes ingrained in our culture. And a lot of the time, 
you know, you walk into a pub at, you know, 11 a.m. in the morning and there'll be at least a couple of older men sitting at the table just chugging back some beer. And it's so predominant here. It's our means for socialization, I feel. There's so many young people that are like, we don't go for coffee anymore. Like, we don't hang out anymore. It's just, oh, let's get drunk at the weekend. And like, you can come up to mine and we can, you know, we can just get drunk and wine or we can, you know, go out to the clubs and things. And I think that that kind of needs to be addressed and spoken about in a way because it can lead into into things that happen to me. And what do you find happens socially if somebody such as yourself goes the other way and says, I'm not doing that, I'm not drinking? Um, I think there's a few people that have been like that. I mean, when I was younger as a teenager, when I turned 18, I had no interest in drinking. I remember like my cousin saying, you know, oh, I can't wait to take you out for your, you know, your first drink. And I wasn't interested at all. And so it's very rare that it does happen, but it, it, it does happen. Um, it kind of goes against a lot of things, but I feel like that therefore segregates somebody if they're not going out and getting drunk or even going out, but not drinking very much. If you go out and you're not a liability when you're drunk, you're not fun, you're not cool. And then what happens when a young person says, I think maybe I have a problem? I don't think that a lot of young people do. They don't acknowledge that it's a problem. They think that it's a way of life. I have people that I know that go out drinking every single weekend, um, Saturdays and Sundays, Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays, and they get blackout drunk. And, you know, nobody really kind of bats an eye because they're young and they're enjoying themselves. But that therefore becomes a problem sometimes when you're exposed to addiction in the family or you're using that as a coping mechanism. And you had that happen, of course, but now you've got a year sober. Where do you want to go from here? I feel like this is my year. <laughs> I feel like this is my year, man. I'm looking forward to starting an amazing sober life with my girlfriend. I'm looking forward to going into the addiction field career-wise. I'm looking forward to sharing my story everywhere and speaking to young people, inspiring them. I'm looking forward to so much. I'm doing really good and I'm, I'm quite proud of everything that I've kind of experienced to get here. And I've realized that everything that I have experienced has been worth something if somebody even listening to this or reading my blog or whatever can read it and think, you know what, like, I'm going to try this whole sober thing. Let's try it because I'm not happy with the way things are. But no, I'm excited to getting into recovery even more. I'm excited to meet more people. And yeah, it's going to be a good year. <laughs> That's fantastic. As one of my mentors in recovery has told me many times, if someone had given me a pencil and paper at the beginning of my recovery and said, write down everything you want from recovery and you'll get exactly that, no more, no less, I would have cheated myself out of so much because I couldn't imagine how good my life would get. Absolutely. So I'm sure this year will hold amazing things for you. And it's wonderful that you're sharing this journey with so many people. Now we've covered a lot of ground, but I want to ask, what would you like to say to family members who are listening to this podcast? Um, to family members who have somebody in their life that they care about that has an addiction, I would just say, 
support them, love them, love them through it. Be patient is the main thing, which it can be so difficult to. I know that my poor girlfriend and my poor mum and brother were probably pulling out their hair at times with me. I think a, a main thing would be to look after yourself and to speak to somebody for yourself too, because addiction doesn't just affect the person that is going through it. It affects everybody involved and everybody who loves that person, whether that's friends or family, partners. And so there's no shame in seeking help and speaking to somebody. Maybe therapy would be better because it's more confidential and, you know, they're trained for this. But love and support them through it and, and don't forget about you. Don't forget about yourself. Look after yourself, talk to somebody and it will get better. Thank you for that. And is there anything else that you'd like to say to young people who might be listening to this program? To all the young people who are listening, I want to say don't be afraid. Don't be scared if you feel that you may have problems with alcohol. There's no labels thrown onto it. You're not a binge drinker, an alcoholic. If you want to, you know, just speak to somebody about your problems with alcohol, then do so. There's nothing wrong with you. I think that that was the main thing that, that I felt, um, that there was something wrong with me, that because I didn't fit the mold of an alcoholic, that I couldn't be one. And I couldn't have a problem with drinking because a lot of other people were acting the same way that I was. But it's coming to a realization. If you are unhappy with the way things are going, if you're unhappy with your alcohol use, if you feel that you are relying on alcohol as a coping mechanism, then 100% speak out, go to somebody, whether it's a therapist, whether it's an outpatient program like that I previously went to, we are with you. Um, finding someone or an organization or a friend who cannot push you into recovery or try to save you but can hold your hand while you save yourself. Beautifully put. Well, Amy, it has been such a pleasure having you on our program. I wish you wonderful blessings in your ongoing sobriety. Now, before we close, where can people find you to follow you on your journey and hear your message of recovery? You can find me on amyjade.com, which is just A-M-Y-J-A-D-E.com. You can find me on Twitter, which is Amy Jade Galloway. Mostly all of my social medias are Amy Jade Galloway. Um, I do some fun little TikTok videos, like the cool youngster that I am. <laughs> I make kind of funny, relatable TikTok content about recovery. So I'm just Amy Jade Galloway on that. Well, Amy, it has once again been wonderful to have you on our show. Hope we'll have you on again. So as people say in your part of the world, cheers, and we'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening to our interview of Amy Jade Galloway. I loved the themes of self-acceptance and connection, which are so vital to my life in sobriety. Amy has a website, amyjade.com, where you can find uplifting essays and some worksheets that can be helpful in early recovery. Her Twitter handle is at Amy Jade Galloway, that's G-A-L-L, 
O-W-A-Y, and she's even on TikTok, also using her full name. Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about Addiction to the Family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictionofthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey.